Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. You're listening to The Western Rookie, a hunting podcast full of tips, tricks, and strategies from seasoned Western hunters. There are plenty of opportunities out there. We just need to learn how to take on the challenges. Hunting is completely different up there. I've harvested 26 big game animals. You can fool their eyes, but you can't fool their nose. 300 yards back to the road turned into three miles back the other way. It's always cool seeing new hunters go and harvest an animal. I don't know what to expect. If there's anybody I want in the woods with me, it'll be you. Welcome back to another Western Rookie Podcast episode. I'm your host, Brian Krebs, and today we have Mr. Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network himself, Dan Johnson. Um, Dan and I, uh, obviously, we talk every now and then because we're on the same podcast network, and he mentioned he was going out west again this year for mule deer, and uh, we wanted to get him on the podcast because you've been doing mule deer and western hunting. We were just talking in the green room for a long time, years. Um, yeah. I've been doing it. I would say probably the same timeline going out West as you. Um, and like all of our listeners know, I've never shot an elk with my bow. I've been pretty okay with a rifle, but that getting that, that tag punched with a bow in the West as a, as a whitetail hunter, as a tree stand whitetail hunter, it's not a skill set that directly correlates. And it sounds like you have kind of a similar, um, story with your adventures in the West. It's, it's, it's definitely different. Like you throw all your tactics out, and you and you kind of got to start from scratch, and so I wanted to talk about that with you because you're doing you're doing like front range mule deer, right? Well, I'm not sure what that means. Uh, I'm <laughs> okay. doing uh, I'm doing I'm doing Western South Dakota. Okay. Uh, so basically, your your prairie uh, where prairie meets kind of like the the Black Hills mm. area. Yeah. Uh, I'm looking at a lot of flat tops and when you're on these flat tops you can see forever i mean you can see until your eyes but then you drop down to all these cuts and these drainages uh where they like to hang out so it's like uh real broken country broken yes exactly yeah Yeah, that's kind of where i started my mule deer hunting um career was in the badlands of north dakota um a little bit different because we don't have yeah that front range what i mean i guess what i mean when i talk about the front range is like the foothills the broken country leading up into the mountains so like it would kind of be the like the like the um black hills front country is what you're kind of hunting um which is just the only reason i bring that up is you're not in like black timber alpine mule deer country like that's a completely different hunt yeah right right and so have you been going late October, like, cause you, we went late October this year, right? Yeah, I went late October and this is the, this is the latest that I've ever gone mm-hmm. uh, on my South Dakota trip. Now I, I will say this, I've been mule deer hunting in Nebraska a handful of times as well, uh, but it, you know, it's that Western part of the state, Northwestern part of the state. And, uh, and so 
I've done like three or four, I want to say three of those trips, four of those trips, and then five years worth of five or six, five or six years worth of mule deer hunts to South Dakota. And so that's, that's my, I just need to like put that out there. That is my experience level. That's, it's only been five, six years. I still go out there every year and wonder why I continue to do this to myself. But this was my first year going out this late into October. Um, I've gone like for, for South Dakota opener, non-resident is October 1st. Mm. And so I've, I've been out there for the opener. I've been out there for the second week. I've been out there for the third week. And now this year, I've also been out there for the last week, including a couple times where I went out there in December to try to fill a tag that I didn't fill in October. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting because I think October is kind of like, I would call it like a lull in the in the mule deer season as well. Um, there's early season velvet. A lot of people go out very early. They try to get them on beds. It's hot. There's a lot of bedding throughout the midday. And if you can you can bed them, I've been told you can typically get a stock together. Um, but yeah. the mule deer rut is really late for anyone that doesn't know. Like I would say, right now, like this week, November twentieth is really the start of the mule deer rut. Like, this would probably be that, like, pre-rut, a um, little bit of seeking and chasing, and then, yeah, I'd say maybe the next 10 days is, like, the peak of the mule deer rut. It's about two and a half weeks past white, behind whitetails. And so, okay, you know, that, that late October, I'm a little surprised knowing you and knowing your passion for whitetail hunting that you, you left Iowa for late October this year. Yeah, and it, it really what it came down to was schedule. I... I showed my wife a calendar and said, I'm going, I'm going to go to South Dakota. One of these weeks, it's going to be the third week or the fourth week in October. You pick it. Mm. She, so she picked the fourth week, which I think she regretted because it ended up leading right into, you know, I got oh, back yeah. on, I got back on the 30th. Um, I, uh, I did the whole Halloween thing with the family. And then I went right into hunting the rut here in Iowa. And so um, I don't think I will go back next year, the last week in October, even though I think I liked it a little bit more because of the cooler temperatures. Yeah. Uh, because, because the deer were on their feet a little bit more mm-hmm. than they, they are early season, you know, early, I like going early season because, you know, they have, they're still on a really strict bed to food pattern. Mm-hmm. Most times they're, they're going back to the same food source multiple times in a row. Um, as opposed to this, where they're, the food start sources are, tra- are starting to dry up. So I think they're traveling a lot more looking for food sources, right. As opposed to, you know, early October, late September, they're, the food sources are still right there. And they're, they're all over the place. And so they don't have to travel as much. But as that all dries out, and as you know, and the rest of the Western uh, part of the country knows, it w- it's been extremely dry. Yeah. And so food sources on that aspect are also, they dry up, they're limited. And, and then it just even limits it more leading into, I guess, the, the rut. 
Yeah, and then you throw on top of that your cattle rotations, grazing rotations, yes. and some of your yes. spots where you're like, man, this valley was dynamite. I'm going back here this year. Mm-hmm. And you get there, and it's been grazed out all summer long, and there's no feed, and there's no deer. I mean, it's yeah, it's almost the same as like a corn bean rotation for whitetails is like the food sources can change year to year, just depending on agricultural rotations. So, yeah. One thing that I've always done before every season that I go out there, excuse me, is I do a lot of e-scouting just like anybody who goes out of state does. And so you find these spots and you're like, Ooh, this looks, this looks money. This looks money. You get there and there's a thousand head of cattle there (laughs) that have, literally eating the vegetation down to the dirt yeah right and so the mule deer aren't there yeah they're not gonna they're not eating dirt and so they've been pushed somewhere else and then and then you got to start you got to start from scratch you do and it's funny have you noticed this about mule deer compared to some of the other species that you've hunted that a lot of times they're in places you find them in places where you were like, why are you here? Like on paper, this is a terrible place for you to be living. You know, for like yeah. whitetails, you find food, you find cover, there's going to be deer there. Elk, you find right. black timber, you find a bench third of the way up the mountain, there's going to be elk sign there. But sometimes mule deer, they're just out in the middle of nowhere, almost like an antelope, just on their own. And you're like, why are you over here? Yeah, and, that, and that's one thing it's hard for me, that's been hard for me as a whitetail hunter is there are certain things mule deer do that are the same, but there's a lot that they do that are just completely different. And I'm, you know, like for the first couple of years, I'm like, okay, all deer do this. Well, that's not true. Right. (laughs) Uh, Mule deer are a completely different species. So I had, I have to go in and I have to learn how they move through the, uh, the terrain. They are, they're dumb in a certain aspect, meaning like, I have literally rode, drove a truck or have ridden my e-bike or even walked right in front of them and they do not move, right? Western, like a Western whitetail, they see you, adios, dude. And you, they will run until you can't even see them anymore. Yeah. A mule, a mule deer though, will sit and watch you. And, and they'll watch you and watch you. They're, they're, they're frozen and they think that you can't see them. And then if you get inside this comfort zone, then what they'll do is they'll bounce, 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 stop, look back, and then they'll they'll run away until they can't see you anymore. And then they go back to being comfortable. They'll try to find a bed. So I, there are times where I'm able to get back on a deer that I already spooked. But really from a strategy standpoint on, on mule deer, I'm doing something that's no different than probably what everybody else is doing and that's mornings afternoons trying to find where they stand up or what cracks and crevices that they're in and just spot and glass all day long yeah and then you change high spot and you're glassing the exact same drainage just from a different angle and you're glassing again until you locate one when you locate one you, then you got to say to yourself, okay, where's the wind direction? How am I going to approach him? And, and really just go on stock. And for me, this is what, this is what hunting mule deer is. Locate them, go on a stock, get busted, locate a different deer, go on a stock, 
get busted. <laughs> and it's just, that's the cycle. But I will say this, that every stock I go on, something right happens. And I learn a little bit more yeah. about how much I can get away with, like what to do if a deer is bedded down in a certain area. And so basically the type of mule deer hunting that I'm doing is that bed attack, you know, attack them while they're in their bed type right. type hunting and uh, try to sneak up on them. Very rarely do I ever catch them on their feet and try to go into maybe the next drainage that they're working into and get a shot at them just because there's no cover yeah. uh, out there where, where I hunt. So really I'm having to use the terrain as the blocker and, and me put myself in position. And, and sometimes you can look for me anyway, this is one thing that I need to get better at is I can look in a drainage. I can find the deer. I can put a plan together, but then the issue comes, I get in there, I've put the plan together and now they're still 70 or 80 yards away. Yeah. And so the, to be clear, you've been that de- you're a dedicated bow hunter or not maybe dedicated bow hunter, but you're a very avid bow hunter knowing you, yep. your bow is always your first choice and you've been trying to do this yep. with a bow. Um, yep. and so like, that's where the 70, 80 yard bubble becomes an issue. And like, yep. I've heard a lot of people say like mule deer are so dumb and especially the young ones for sure. They're dumb. They'll let you shoot them with the bow right off the road. But mm-hmm. the mature ones, they do behavior that I think whitetail hunters think is dumb. But when you have a bow, it might not mm-hmm. matter if it looks dumb or not. It's still really incredibly hard to get within bow range of a mature mule deer. Um, yeah, for yeah. rifle hunting, it they do, story. they do a lot of things that aren't very good for their survival. Like the whole run yeah. 100 yards and stop and look back at the next skyline. Like that's a pretty easy marker or a pretty easy rifle shot when they stop at that yeah. 200 yard mark, but with a bow, you know, and it's, it, it it's so frustrating because it looks so stupid for us mm-hmm. yet. Mm-hmm. It still doesn't work. And a lot of people yeah. that I've talked to have said like a, a, a Boone and Crockett mule deer might be one of the hardest Boone and Crockett animals in, in the lower yeah. 48 to, to find and harvest, you know, obviously forget about the, like the MSG tags. This episode is brought to you by steelhead outdoors. From the moment I first saw a Steelhead Outdoor Safe, I knew I was going to order one. The ability to customize the color, the configuration, and most importantly, the ability to move and assemble my safe panel by panel makes Steelhead Outdoors the clear winner when it comes to gun safes. And if you haven't ordered a Steelhead Outdoor Gun Safe yet, you can still benefit from their innovation and creativity because the guys over at Steelhead have designed some awesome accessories their case keeper allows you to hang all of your hunting caps and gun cases off the side of your safe and it keeps your hunting room looking clean and organized or my favorite is the bow keeper that lets me hang my bow off the side of my safe so me and my wife can walk into our safe room hang up our bows after shooting in the backyard and not have to worry about the hassle of putting our bows back in the case every time both the bow keeper and case keeper are magnetic and work with any safe, which means you can use them now with your current safe, and when the time comes to order your Steelhead Outdoors gun safe, you'll already have all the accessories you need. Head over to SteelheadOutdoors.com to order your bow keeper and case keeper today. That you just can't even draw in your lifetime. Yeah. But 
because they don't they don't really call. You can tweak and you know we had Jason Phelps on the call and he said there's doing there's some things you can do like if you got to get them to cross a fence line, but they're not coming in like an elk. They're not patternable like a whitetail. You know you can't. Right. They just they they're out there doing their own thing and it's it's so incredibly hard to get within bow range of them. And I don't think like the drought helps. Like you talk about trying yeah. to stock it to seventy yards. The last mule deer I shot. I ran out of cover at 496. Now, luckily, I had a 300 wind mag instead of a mm-hmm. Matthews Halon, and, and the deer still came home with me. But it was like a golf green. It was a putting green of cover that I had, and I was trying to yeah. crawl, and it, he's sitting up there watching me crawl at him. You know, And if yeah. you're trying to do that with a bow, like you said, you're, you're really dependent on how broken is the country. Can I get around hiding behind ridges and plateaus to get close enough? Because there's no grass. Like, you can't just crouch and crawl through the sage there's no sage right right the other thing that i run into right outside of this this bubble that you've talked about is all the other eyes that you can't see right mm-hmm. and so i'm glassing i oh, oh there's a buck i want to make a move now in my hunting career right now i'm not after any type of mature anything i'm after a mule deer buck like okay. that's what i want and so i'm not I'm, I'm hunting the first, anything that's legal, that's what I'm going after. Right. Okay. And so when I go out and I'm, I'm glassing, I'm glad, oh, there's a buck. So I go in, I do my stock. The other thing that I have a real problem of trying to overcome, and, and I think this is something that I'm, I'm sure even experienced mule deer, spot and stock mule deer hunters have to deal with. And that's all the other deer that are bedded in the same drainage that you may not have seen going up, you know, going into. And so I'm now I'm on a stock and now either I see something or maybe I turn back and look uphill and there's three does standing right next to me. And when they take off, so does the buck. Right. Yeah. And so it just getting past all their eyes. I mean, I I've been on, I've I've spotted up a really good buck. Here's one example from a couple of years ago, glass him up, shooter buck. And so I said to myself, okay, I'm going to get another angle on this deer to see if there's anything else in the drainage. Get in there. There's deer on, there's does on both sides of the drainage. And it's, it's so awesome to see this because I don't, I don't know if whitetails do this. And the reason I don't know if they do this because I can't see them. Yeah. like I can see a mule deer. Okay. But, and actually this same exact thing happened this past year too, where the biggest, oldest mature buck will wait to bed last after all of the other deer have bed. And he puts himself right in the middle mm. of all of, you know, all these other deer. And not only does he have his back and wind to his favor, but he can also see reactions of other deer if, in fact, something's coming from a place that might be a, a block to him. And so, as a whole, these deer are not just betting in their best favor, but they're also betting in an area where, yeah, or in a, in a, in a scenario where they're helping each other by betting where they're betting. Yeah, it's almost like all the like medieval video movies you watch and there's like a, a tower up on the mountain that's starts a yep. fire and then everyone in the valley knows like there's an issue coming um yep yep and i think Absolutely. that's that's i think that's one um 
th- a, a unique aspect of hunting the broken country. So typically in October, in the in a true mountain range, the bucks are still up high by themselves in bachelor groups all the way through October, and then in November they start coming down to find does typically. And the does usually yeah. don't, just on average, it's stereotypes, but don't go up as high. Well, in the broken country, there is no, um, you know, alpine for those mature bucks to go to. So they're just always with the deer. So not, every, you yeah. know, it's going to be just as hard to climb to 13,000 feet to find a, a mature buck as it is to figure out how to get through all these eyeballs. But they're just, they yeah. do like things that are hard to hunt. Yep. Especially in an area where there are good numbers of deer. Now, one thing that I found is it's easier, it's harder to find the deer, mm-hmm. but easier to make a spot, uh, spot and stock on a deer that is uh, in a lower quantity area. Yeah. I listened to a podcast that Ryan Lampers was on, which I think he goes by Stealthy Hunter and he hunts with the Gritty Crew a lot. And he was describing a hunt where he watched the same mule deer buck for 10 days until mm-hmm. that mule deer bedded in a spot where he could think he had a chance. And so for 10 days, he went out and he watched and he didn't go on a stock. And then on yep. the 11th day, he said, oh, there it is. Now I can shoot him and went in and got him. And it's just like, obviously, as a, it, he's talking about trophy quality. Once, you know, you're not going to just go and find a different buck of that stature and so that was the one. Every he de- time. Yeah, that's yeah. the one he decided he wanted, and he just stayed on it until that opportunity gave itself. But that kind of goes to shows like I know I've done this enough that you know that that stock's not going to work if there's three does bedded, um, you know, upwind of him because to come in with the wind in my favor, I'm going to blow those does out, and then the, the whole gig is up. Yeah. Or you know, I, I'm not going to be able to do it when there's a, a doe on the other side of the canyon that I need to access. It, it there's so many yep. things that it that go wrong yep. <laughs> with the archery mule deer. The, the, and that's an, that's an example that happens to me just about every year where I go, I say to myself, Hey, I can go in and I can, I can try to beat all these eyes, but I know I'm not going to. So I've walked away from good bucks because I'm not in, like I said, I'm, I got a five day window yeah uh, and I can only hunt so many days. I got a day of travel, two days of travel a f- and a five day hunt in the middle. So five days where I can actually hunt. And so after I've had days where I've walked away from bedded bucks because I need to find something that's easier to stock. Yeah. And it's, and I'm not, like, I'm, like I said, I'm not in the stage where I need to have a big antlered mature mule deer. I just want a mule deer at right. this point. Yeah. And it's, it's hard. Um, I'm a little bit curious. So when you started this adventure, it sounds like maybe eight years ago, total, um, have you always been going solo? Have you been going with, but like, what's kind of your, like the group look like? Cause you know, we archery elk hunt now with eight people. And so there's yeah. lots of fast learning. We break up into four groups of two. We start scouting landscapes. We start finding elk, you know, and we're hitting in the first three days, we hit 12 different spots and try to zero in on where the elk are. Um, we have, you know, 12 different sets of information lessons learned in those first three days and then we can start to put it together in the last four but when you're by yourself you hit one spot a day you get one set of experiences a day and so that's kind of why i'm a little bit curious like what's that look like for you yeah so the very first year i went i went with a guy and man we had an awesome year like first hunt ever 
his first hunt mule deer hunt ever my first mule deer hunt well it wasn't my first mule deer hunt my first mule deer hunt in south dakota and we ended up locating a really good buck we went up into this drainage knocked him out of his bed uh and he was at 58 yards and my buddy smoked him the next day uh, we we know we packed him out the next day uh, in the afternoon we went back in and i located a uh, a, a medium-sized mule deer i got up above him shot down i hit him one long never found him okay and so that was that was the first year since then i've gone solo you know there's one year i brought a cameraman with me yeah. but he's he's with me he's yeah. not out going somewhere else and and saying oh dude i saw a whole bunch of deer in this drainage but i ended up uh I'm going solo now, sleeping in the back of my truck, um, or depending on how far I am from a town, I might get a yeah get a hotel, uh, like a hotel, like a really cheap hotel room. But outside of that, it's just me out there now, running solo. And is that because you prefer to hunt that way? Is that because it's hard? Like it is, it's objectively very hard to find people to spend your hunt with because it's your vacation, it's your hunt. Um, you've been yeah. looking forward to all year. Like you gotta, you gotta have people that that you know you can work with. You're not gonna get sick of. You're not gonna fight. You're not gonna be at each other's throats or cutting each other off. I mean, it takes a lot right. to find a good hunting partner, and it's not easy. A lot of people are just like, I don't have it. I don't have someone I can bring out in the mountains with me for seven days. Yeah, whitetails. I'm a solo guy. Like yeah. I don't, I don't hunt with any groups of people. I have my own properties. I go do my own thing. The reason that I don't go hunting out west with really anybody anymore is, and I, I do it solo, is a straight up scheduling. Yeah. It's like when I can go doesn't mean this person can go. Um, everybody's got really busy lives. Everybody's got kids and things like that. So when I get an opportunity to step away, like I, I need to do it on the my best, like what works best for me and not what works best for me and somebody else. Now, mm. am I opposed to it? Absolutely not. I actually enjoy going on Western hunts uh, with a, a second guy that we can tag team uh, a, a big drainage or a valley. We can go our separate ways and yeah. then, you know, oh my God, what'd you see? Well, I got, I got a big buck bedded. Okay, don't move. I'll be over there. I'll watch him through the spotter and as you go in and, and do it that way, if you mess up, I can see him, you know, like there's yeah. just, so, there's so many benefits to having another set of eyes out there and being able to just cover more ground, see more angles, bounce ideas off of each other. Because one thing that I do is I get in a rut where I feel like I, I need to do the same thing every time. And then it would be beneficial if someone said to me, Hey, slow down a second, dude let's let's think about this idea or, right. or run different scenario scenarios by each other or say hey this buck is worth putting a stock on or hey look at all those does with him let's let's just leave him alone let's go find something else and we can just mark that he's here so we can check this drainage tomorrow and if he's still in here it has a maybe he's one ridge over or one drainage over right. next time and we can we can you know get us easier stock on him that time yeah, and it's there's a lot of in my experience there's a lot of also like soft benefits to having a hunting partner on a western trip. Like you talked about all like very tactically sound benefits. Like we shoot a deer, we can get it out in half the time. I can have a spotter watching, giving me hand signals. He's still there, he's gone. 
Um, there's a lot of things. But, like, on this other note, and you've probably seen this, like, you go seven days in the back of your truck, you know, maybe you don't even have cell phone reception, you can't be checking in with the family. Like, there's things that start to wear on you. And, like, a lot of mm-hmm. people, unless you, like, do it a lot, like you're an Aaron Snyder or a Cameron Haynes and you just live in the back country and you're used to it, like, if it's not something you do ever, or maybe this is the first trip, you start to, like, be like, oh, man, why am I here? This sucks. You know, nothing's working. You just, like, start to – your mind can wander. You easily yeah. wander. And it's just, like, yeah. when you have someone there that's, like, got an equal energy as you, like, even – they might have been in the same place alone. But when you're together and you're, like, you can you can – keep each other a little like not like you're having like accountability meetings but like you're not gonna voice your like concerns as much like yeah you might be having a shit day but you're not gonna like complain to your buddy about it you're just right. gonna like suck if, it up if you have going. yeah if you have the right hunting partner who is also a friend and who also knows you like you can say things like all right dude let's go come on yeah let's move let's go and then that person will ultimately say no dude let's just chill here a second and it lead to a conversation or you're just like all right let's go yeah you know what i mean it's hey let's go do this let's go do this yeah and so you're actually communicating uh with another human other than having an internal conversation with yourself where you're second guessing everything that you you should do yeah right? hey and think we should move yeah let's move and then when you're by yourself, you're like, oh, man, this isn't work. I'm just going to go get, like, lunch. I'm going to go to town and, you know, whatever. And it's so easy to check out of a hunt when you're by yourself, yep. you know, four or five days in. I did that on an elk hunt once. I was the only one. I got five random points from Colorado. They messed up in their system and gave me five elk points. And so I cashed in on them and went out, but I was the only one that had could get a tag. So I'm doing a nine-day alpine rifle hunt by myself. It's cold. Sleeping in the back of my truck, 13 below. It snows. The elk... It's just, like, endless things. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go and get a hotel. I'm going to get a pizza. I'm going to, like, I'm going to come back tomorrow with a different mindset. Because this, it sucks. Like, it was not fun, you know? Yeah. It's yeah. It, I, it, it's fun to go I out and have fun. I just talked about that. <laughs> yeah. I actually just talked about that um, in a in a rut, like a uh, back end of the rut whitetail uh, where – if there's a lot of guys out there and I it happened to me this year where I was struggling, you know, I put a bad shot on a big deer and uh, he ended up living, but it just kind of wrecked my world for a little bit. And so the best thing for me to do was actually take a day off and go in, you know, and, and go hang with the family and come back. The only asterisk there on that comment is though, when you're out, when you're out west and you're driving 10 11 hours there's no, you can't do yeah. you can't do that because ultimately you're hurting yourself in the long run by just straight up the amount of time because you're missing one potentially two hunts right an afternoon or a morning or a morning yeah. and afternoon and you know you get into an area it's four or five six o'clock in the afternoon you locate a deer well hey guess what um it's good to find them but you don't have enough time for a stock and knowing mule deer, he's not going to be in that drainage tomorrow. If you're looking forward to another fall of hunting big bucks, but you're tired of freezing your tail off or getting busted by does, head over to maverickhunting.com and check out their Maverick and Booner blinds. Both series are incredibly easy to set up and get out in the woods. I set up two of the six-panel blinds in the same week. 
And whether your favorite spot is on a field edge or way back in the sanctuary, you can have a hard-sided blind in your favorite spot this season. Keep the elements out and you're sent in with a Maverick hunting blind. The best part is Maverick blinds ship out of their factory in just one or two days, which means you still have plenty of time to get a comfortable blind set up before the cold weather arrives and those big bucks are cruising through your spots. Go to maverickhunting.com and use the code WESTERNROOKIE, that's one word, to save 10%. That's right, 10% on your Maverick hunting blinds. Morning. Right. Yeah, no, it is. There's a lot that goes into it, and and so that's why it's nice to just have like a. I think two is better than one, but it. I think like three, is like where I would like to be, like three or four guys. I like I like a lot of things about having one pickup, I really mm-hmm. do, um. But like two guys, you can start to get on each other's throat really easy. But as soon as you add that mediator, you know. Me and Dan, yeah. and we don't agree. We're kind of button heads on stuff. But then, then there's that third guy, and he kind of like, well, I think Dan's right. And it's like, all right, well, I guess I got to shut up. I lost the vote. You know, we're doing it Dan's yeah. way. I think that third guy, yeah. like once you get to the three people that are all like good buddies, killers, you're all committed, driven. No one's going to give up. Like those are all, like baseline requirements. But when you add that third person, I think the dynamic really changes and takes a lot of stress off. Because sometimes it's just like, you know, you and I are stuck five days, like, talking to each other. What if we run out of shit to talk yep. about? Now we're just sitting in the truck for 12 hours on a road trip, silent. Like, it, it can get, yeah. get kind of weird. And you add that third yeah. or fourth person, it starts to really alleviate a lot of things. Yeah. I, I, I've i been there. <laughs> like, I, I went to Nebraska one year with a guy that I met. Um, he's a great guy. Don't get me wrong. Dude, I loved, I loved every second of it. But we had a day where – we were voicing our opinions, but then not really, you know, like we didn't want to start a conflict really with each yeah. other. But then, so we went out and we did ultimately, we did what I wanted to do. And we walked for, we walked for hours and didn't see a, a single mule deer. We got eaten alive by mosquitoes. And so it was just a, and, and then we were, two or three hours away from where we started off and where we, we said we were going to be focusing a lot of our time. So there was uh, uh, a day where, and then at the same time, we were 45 miles from the closest town. Oh, So we had to go through this town, then another two and a half hour drive to get to back where we were at. So the next morning we could go, and put ourselves in a better position, but, but it was rough. You know, we were, we were men at the end of it and said, Hey, fuck it, dude. I'm sorry. We apologized to each other. Right. Um, and we got, o- we got over it and we went back to hunting. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I was there with a buddy who had him on the podcast. We're still good yeah. buddies, but uh, he passed a buck on the first day that I was like, dude, I don't think you should have passed that buck. Like we're at the, we're hunting Southeast Montana secrets out. Southeast Montana is not the gravy train anymore for mule deer. And, yeah. uh, he saw a four by four and he was just like holding out for something more. And I'm like, dude, I don't think we're going to see another four by four. And so we hunted the rest of the day. And we wanted to go back into that spot the next morning. We got there early, but there was a truck parked, and we're like, well, he could have went right. You know, we're going left. So we get in there, sure enough, we were, we're like on his backtrack. We run into him. He's 100 yards away. This is a rifle hunt. And I'm yeah. like, dude, we got to back out. Like, we can't. 
this like he's here first. He's like, well, why don't we just go like two hundred yards over? I'm like, that's not how it works in the West. Like, yeah, he's got a rifle. He's covering this whole area. Like, we can't just bump over two hundred yards. And he was pissed. Like, I thought we were gonna get into a real fight. And for the rest of the day, it was a little awkward. It turns out we both shot a buck. We're both happy. I think you know everything kind of calmed down. But you know when things don't work like that, like everyone's like, hey, I love this dude. It's a great time. Well, okay, now how do you, what do you think when neither of you are having success and you're on day three of not seeing a deer. Do you think, you know, do you think you guys are still going to be getting along at the same way you are <laughs> when you're whitetail hunting and you're seeing deer every night? Like that changes things. And a lot of people don't think about that. Like what happens if things aren't going well? How does the relationship right. work? So right. are you going to the same spot year after year or do you change spots? Like how do you pick where you're going to go? Cause I assume you're doing all DIY public land stuff. Yeah, all DIY, all public land. Like I said, some of the places are close to a town yeah. to where it's maybe a 30-minute drive in the mornings. And I can, you know, I can get into this public and get into a position where it's not a huge drive in the morning. If the temperatures are are suitable for it, you know, it's not like 20 degrees below zero. Mm, yeah. I have a really good, I have a really good sit like camping situation in the bed of my truck and I've made it. So it's pretty comfortable back there. I got a topper yeah. on, on my truck. And so that's from a comfortability standpoint, I, I really like to be out there as long, like I'd rather not go back to a hotel every night. I'd rather go to my truck and, and just be closer to it. That way you can get more sleep. You can, you, there's no real stress of back and forth, back and forth. You're not spending as much money in gas or food. You've already brought everything that you need. Yeah. And that's, that's really how I approach it. Are you hitting, so like you said, the last four or five years, you've gone to South Dakota. Are you like the same unit, the same, like, are you hunting the same you know, depending on where you find the deer, the same areas, or you say, nah, I didn't really like that area. I'm going to move up 200 miles. So, I'm going to move down a hundred miles. Yeah. So here's the best thing about having a podcast that a lot of people listen to. All right. And that is straight up information. And not only do I get this information from people who maybe follow me, but also I am a, I'm the guy who talks to absolutely everybody I run into out there, mm -hmm. whether I'm talking to a guy who I find in the backcountry, or I'm talking to a guy that I see at town who has camo or uh, at a gas station where there's a big mule deer hanging in there. Hey, where'd you get that? And how, hey, where, where are the deer at? I'm talking to everybody yeah. and I'm getting information from everybody. And so in the past, I've gone to the same areas over and over again. And then, so the first year I went out to South Dakota, it was hot. I mean, I was seeing hundreds of deer a day. I was, we were locating deer, able to move in on them, all that good stuff. And then as things start to change, right? Maybe like you, you mentioned earlier, grazing patterns or grazing rotations, uh, different times a year, how much rain we, we get or don't get plays an impact in where deer are at. And so really I go back to the same areas, but then adjust within them. Yeah. Uh, like within, I would say a, a 45, 50 mile radius to try to locate deer within that same 
that same river system yeah or that same the a big drainage that runs for 20 30 miles or something like that but now what i do what i've done is i i'm, I'm starting to learn properties that are better i'm trying i'm starting to learn you know where it's like certain pieces of public land deer or uh, cattle have to be out by this specific date every single year yeah some of in the past some of those properties they could have cattle in them all year round or that it would be a, a wintering graze for these cattle so i know that now i now i know hey i need to stay away from this because there's going to be cattle in here i need to go to this area right. where cattle haven't been yet uh, things like that so i'm starting to learn a little bit of that on top of just having people who i know live out there and hunt out there and they're like just hey hey dude here's where i saw a deer last uh you know a month ago or last year here's a deer here's an area that has a high population that i've i've seen earlier this year where i shot my buck or whatever and so i go and visit those spots and having having local intel plays an absolute huge it's huge for me because Oh, shit i don't know if there's deer there or not when i get there <laughs> yeah. same, same as same as like when i've been on these elk hunts it's like okay i'm driving 18 hours i'm climbing 2,000 feet setting up a tent or a camp and then i'm going to climb another thousand feet and then there's there's a good chance the elk aren't even there for five straight days right so it would it would have been nice if some local that i know said, I wouldn't go there, man. I haven't seen an elk there for two or three weeks. So that I, I rely heavily on that, that type of Intel. Yeah. And it's nice to be able to, it sounds like you're, you're leveraging, I would call that the same spot, right? Like in the West, in the front, in the broken country, like 50 miles, like that's the same spot. You you know, the roads, yeah. you know, the river systems. Exactly. You're leveraging previous year's data. I mean, if you were to say like, nah, I'm bouncing, you know, hundred miles this way, hundred miles that way. Like those are different spots. You you're learning roads for the first time, which I like to drive roads when I get there. Like I like to see the area we're going to hunt. So the first day I might not even get out of the truck. I might just right. drive around, right. check things out. I mean, if I see something I really like, I'll definitely get out and hunt, but I'm trying to figure out where are roads, where are areas. And then that wastes a day right off the bat. So if you yeah. can go back and be like, I know these areas, I got pins from last year. Like, you know, one yeah. thing that I really like is trying to figure out what the winter range is for local raise grazers, because they probably didn't have any cattle in there all summer long. There's probably more grass if it's their winter range. Now, usually October, November is when they're going to start moving their cattle. They're going to wean their calves and send them off, and then they're going to move their cows into the winter range. So it kind of depends if you're before or after that. But if you're hunting before that, like when I was archery hunting in, in North Dakota, if you could figure out which pastures were the winter range, they typically had more grass in them, and then they'd have more game in them because of that. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. there's a lot of ticks, but you don't learn that stuff if you bounce new units every year, or at least you don't right. learn it early. You And then that's right. when you, you know, you're like, oh, I look back, I always shoot my animal on the last day. It's like, well, yeah, because you went to a new spot. It took you five days to learn where where things were, and then you shot one on the sixth day. Right. And that's a lot of people's Western right. hunt. I mean, a lot of people shoot them on the last day because it takes three or four days to learn an area. Mm-hmm. So. Absolutely. Yeah. I've, uh, and that's why I like, don't get me wrong. I like to go use that local Intel and go check out a new spot. But at the same time, if I can go back to a spot that I'm very comfortable with, and I know 
that there might not be deer right now, but I know that over time, um, like a, a two, the next day deer could be in there. The day after that deer could be in there. Yeah. And so I'm not tip on the public that I go and hunt. We're talking thousands and thousands of acres. Yeah. I'm not talking like a 40 here or a, you know, or an 80 here. Cause out West, it could just be a straight prairie dog village. The whole thing could just be a prairie dog village, flat, no terrain. And you, and it's nothing's going to live there. No, but I like, I like big, large pieces that have the ability to get lost in. And what I mean by that is I can go deeper than anybody's going to go. Yeah. Right? I'm going to, I'm either going to ride my e-bike in there. I'm going to, or, you know, potentially take advantage of some laws uh, where I can ride an e-bike up to a certain point. And then this year, not necessarily local Intel, but the first year that I went out there, I got a hold of a, a farmer mm. or a rancher. Yeah. And I said, Hey, I shot a buck. We followed blood up to your fence. Do you mind if I cross your fence to go look into your property in this drainage? He let me, I went in and I've, I've texted him at least once every year. So this year, I called him up. I left a message and I said, Hey, do you mind if I ride my e-bike through your property to get to a, um, a piece of public that is really far away? It's basically surrounded. Uh, the public goes into private in like this peninsula and there's no access on the Western side of this big, gigantic mm. 33,000 acre chunk. It's all surrounded. So you have to access it through one way. The far the rancher said, yes, I can access, I can ride my bike through his hayfield. And sure enough, I get out there and it, it made, it opened up a whole new view of the drainage. Unfortunately, there was no mule deer in there, but it's that type of asking, not necessarily to hunt, but just to ride your bike through or drive a truck through, or even walk up through a corner to get, uh, to get to that those uh those locations oh yeah that's a game changer i mean if you can i mean because a lot of people archery hunting i think archery hunting the broken country people aren't really doing backpack hunts Mm -hmm. it they're doing day hunts or half day hunts they're parking they're walking out they're coming back to their truck they go to a new spot park you know so they're not necessarily going in deep which is probably a shame they probably should go in deep but if they have to spend like an entire day just to get somewhere, they're going to be like, why would I do that? There's all this stuff I can get to easy. And by yeah. you, now you can get there easy. You can do that same thing. You can go in there, you know, watch the sunrise, see if there's any bucks. If there's not, you can get out quick and go to the next spot for the evening. Yeah. And I think that's a game changer. I don't think that necessarily works as much in like the Alpine because that's where people are doing backpack hunts. They're going in 10 yeah. miles and setting up. And so they're really, you know, it's kind of interesting, even though that's hard, way harder than what you're talking about. People just don't do it. Like, I never see people right. do that in the foothills country, if you will, or the broken country. And it seems like it could be a really good way to, you got to commit, like you're committing to a spot right. in a way right. or finding access like you are. But it's an interesting look at why, like what's different about the hunting strategies. Because in a way you're kind of hunting your hunting plan is affected by what other people are doing. Like you, yeah, if you pull absolutely. up to where you're going to hunt, there's four trucks, even in archery season, you know, I would be like, all right, well, I'm going to go in somewhere else. Like, I just don't want to deal with, 
you know, yeah. not only the eyes of the does on the hill, but the other hunters and the, you know, like. Yeah. And it's not just, it's not even specific. How do I put this? It's not even specific trailheads or parking lots because there's certain pieces like this, this uh, piece of ground that I, uh, that I went to that I started off my mule deer hunt with this year was a place that I'd been almost every year uh, ended up going, taking this long road all the way back. And I backdoored this. Anybody can get to it. It's not a mystery. Um, and then I can drive my truck all the way up to this fence. And then from that fence, I can take my e-bike and then I can take my e-bike from that fence to another fence. And then there's nothing past that fence, like nothing, no horses. It's only foot traffic yeah. from, from there. And so, uh, certain, you know, certain parts, uh, of the country like that. Yeah, that's really helpful. I think an e-bike would be amazing. And I'm an electrical engineer, so I wanted to design one that charges itself that has, like, regenerative braking. Oh, yeah. So you use your e-bike to pedal up the mountain, and you you got to – I had talked to a buddy in our elk camp that's got one. He's like, yeah, I could ride all the way up here in one battery charge. And we went from, like, nine five to 11,000 feet. He's like, yeah. I'd have to pedal, like, maybe 10%, 15%, but the bike's going to basically do all the work. And I'm like, yeah, and that would be sweet yeah. if you could, like, turn on charging on the way down. And yep. You know, you wouldn't ever get back to zero, but you could get like a lot of that recovered and then, you know, extend your battery life a couple more days. But in yeah. the flat country, oh my gosh, would that be a, a like, oh, like yeah. a cheat I can, code? I think it was like three or four days off the battery that I got. Uh, and that's, and that's by what I do is I disengage. So, in order to make this particular e bike a bicycle, because there's a lot of places where the e-bike laws are not black and white. They're yes. very gray. All right. So this, an e-bike is a motorized this. So I, vehicle. Yeah. It's a motorized vehicle or for, for me and what I read uh, and what I, the research that I've done in certain States, if it's below a certain wattage. So my e-bike is a 750 watt e-bike. Um, and so anything above that, like an, uh, the next step would be a thousand Watts. Yeah. Those are considered a motorized vehicle, but anything at that 750 or below is not, Ooh, um, yeah. if you disconnect the throttle. Oh, so you have to just pedal it yourself. Yeah. Right. And so instead of, cause the throttle, if it, if the throttle's engaged, then it becomes a motorized vehicle. Yeah. If I use the throttle, but if I disconnect that, unplug it, and I only pedal, then it's then my pedal, my I'm using human power to engage the motor, and so that's where there's a little bit of a loophole in some of in some of these laws. So disconnecting the throttle, it's under 750, then it's a then it's a bicycle. Well, even a fat tire bicycle is like you're going to move faster, you're going to burn less energy. In almost all situations, I mean, if you're going up steep grade, then you probably just walk. But other than that, yeah. like, you're going to be so much faster going anywhere with that bike. Yeah, yeah I've always wanted one, yeah. but they're not cheap in summer. Mm. Not cheap. No, no. But I also use it for my whitetail farm, too, because I, I, I've i talked about this since I, uh, since, oh, shit, I've talked about this until I've been blue in the face that my my whitetail property i can only access it through one gate there's only one gate i can go through then the rest is 
surrounded by other property owners. Okay. So if I, if I walk in through that gate and walk to my tree stands, everything on this hillside sees me, runs away. But if I come in on an e-bike, they just stare at me and then they say, oh, well, he's not a human. That's like a car or something. Right. And then I go stash it in this pin oak stand and then I will walk down to my tree stands or my saddle wherever I have my platforms and things like that. And so the, just the access that that allows you in the, the amount that you can get away with, it has been an absolute game changer for me. Would you feel comfortable like packing out? So let's, let's just give you the benefit of the doubt. You're going to shoot a 160, you know, meal deer, a mature mm -hmm. buck. He's going to be a little bit heavier than that whitetail. You know, probably not taking him out in one load anyway, but he, he's still going right. to probably have, I mean, 75, 50 to 75 pound packouts if you do it in two trips. Would you mm -hmm. feel pretty comfortable riding your bike around with that load or would you walk it out if you shot no. a deer and you're, and you're packing it out? So here's what I would do, more than likely. And it's hard to say because it uh, depends on what uh, time of day I shot the deer, right? If it's an evening hunt, more than likely what I would do is I would leave my bow and leave my... Uh, I don't know if, if I had any, probably just my bow, maybe some clothing um, out there. Focus on getting the the meat out first. Yep. And then because you can you can three or four miles back, maybe even eight miles back. That's a that's let's say an uh 30 minutes on an e-bike. But the weight, just you the know? weight, like you would feel comfortable right, like right. from a safety standpoint of riding with like 75 pounds on your back. Right. So my e-bike is weighted for, uh, I want to say 350 okay, or something like that. I'm 230. So I can put, if I wanted to, I could put a hundred pounds on my back. The other thing that's really cool is that the e-bike that I have has a back shelf on it. So I can take rope or straps and, and tie that meat down to this back. Okay. And then I can put, I can put maybe a quarter there and then I can put two quarters on my back and then I'm just coming in for maybe the rest of the gear and a light load on my way at, uh, for my second trip. Okay. I've always been like curious, like on because mountain roads are notoriously bad. Oh yeah. And I'm like, I don't know if I'd want to, I don't know. I've never been on an e-bike. I don't know if I'd want to be bouncing around with like an extra hundred pounds on my back. And then like I hit a bump weird or something and like that difference like causes me to not be able to control it or catch it. And all of a sudden I'm going, you know, head over handlebars with a deer on my back. I would, I would say this going downhill in, in those things, you just take it slow. Yeah. Right? Or, or well, going downhill is easy. Like you could just walk it out. Yeah. But yeah, if you got some flat stretch, like you said, eight miles on a flat stretch, you just turn the throttle on, turn and burn, man, that would make yeah. pack outs a lot more enjoyable. If, but at the same time, depends on where you're at because if you're in that no throttle zone, then you still have to do the pedaling with all that weight on your back. Yeah, uphill probably would. I don't know. You'd, you'd probably just have to try it out if it feels easier or not. But downhill, even pedaling, mm -hmm. like you're just like you said, you're coasting or riding brakes instead. Although, did you right. just see? I'm sure you've heard of drone deer recovery now with your podcast. Yep. Did you just see that, Mike? I had Mike on my my entrepreneurship show. Did you see that he just got a drone that he can carry deer with? Uh, no, I haven't, but I did see, uh, people care, carrying elk out with helicopters. I've talked to a, but I have a buddy in Montana that did that. He got, he helicoptered into a unit. 
He had landowner. It took him a long time. I don't know how he got landowner permission, but he finally got landowner permission to cross a ranch into a landlocked public. So he applied, got the tag. That summer, the ranch sold. So now he's got the tag, but the ranch sold. The new guy wanted $10,000 to walk across his property. And so yeah. he went and hired a helicopter. They went in next morning because they couldn't hunt. They both shot two huge bulls. Helicopter picked them up, flew them right over that rancher's house, and dropped them in his pickup. <laughs> so, Ten, so I wonder what what costs more the the, uh, the using a helicopter to, to get in and remove elk or the the ten thousand dollar trespasser fee. I well, I listened to a Randy Newberg show one time, and he said if people knew how cheap this was, a lot more people would do it. So I don't know, five hundred bucks for a helicopter drop camp, maybe depending on how close they are, maybe a thousand dollars. I I really don't know, um, but I don't think it's ten grand. Now, if you got to like have them fly halfway across the state of Montana to pick you up and then bring you to your spot, like obviously you're gonna pay more for that if you're not close by right. the service. But yeah, no, the drone deer recovery. He's got a drone and he showed a video. His uh, nephew or cousin or something shot like a a year and a half old buck and he picked it up with the drone and flew it around on a big rope and then dropped it back down. So I don't know, man. I don't know. Like I felt kind of guilty using my e-bike a little <laughs> bit, right? But yeah, you like, lose a lot of street cred. Like I packed this thing out. Ah, you did not. I saw the video. You used a drone. <laughs> yeah. Well, at the same time, it's like cell cams. Yeah. Right? You know, a lot of a lot of uh, Western uh, states are passing different laws about you know what what it's. A trail camera is what a cell cam is, you know, how you can use it, how you can't use it. And I mean, even this year, when I was sitting in my whitetail stand, I had trail camera or cell cam pictures come to my phone 200 yards away. I could like the, the camera was telling me what was coming through this pinch point. And I said to myself, man, I don't know. I don't know if I, I like, I like this. I don't know because it's, it's causing me to do something different than just sit there. Right, like, yeah, but I, the, I was gonna rattle. I was gonna rattle at some of these deer, and I was like, "Hmm, I don't know, man." I think that's kind of a very fine, you know, splitting hair situation because you were like, what I say is like, you were already in the stand. Yeah, and so like this year, I had a cell cam. I call it Maverick because we just got a Maverick partnership with a blind company, and there's a cell cam underneath it. And I spent six hours setting this blind up, and then that night this huge 160 class buck walks right underneath my stand. But I'm sitting there and I'm getting there like 90 minutes before shooting light because of like I, this, this is a small farm. It's very open. I wanted to make sure I didn't bump any deer. And so I'm sitting there and all of a sudden I get a ding and I'm like, Oh, Hey, there's a deer like right out that window, you know, 15 feet away from my, my enclosed blind. And sure enough, I pull up the binoculars. It's like a full moon night and I can see the deer. Um, but the difference that I think, it's not a big difference, but it's like at least we were already in the stand. We were already hunting versus yeah. like out west, you could put a couple of cell cams in a river valley and you'd be like, oh, that deer's working up this riverbed. And then you could skedaddle all the way around the property and cut him off like that. You could do that. And I that I'm not a fan of because now you really yeah. are changing what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And not to like crazy change the subject, but like the drones things too. Yeah. Like they're at certain drone companies are advertising, hey, sh like shotgun season, uh, rifle season, it's almost here. Hire us to fly over top of your property to see where the deer are hanging out. That way, you know how to get in. That way, you know where the deer are and therefore you have a higher likelihood 
of, you know, getting a shot off. And, and that's just like, hmm, yeah, you feel like, like that games. would fall under aircraft laws, though. Yeah, I don't know. Like 24 hours before you can yeah. hunt with the aid of an aircraft. And to me, it's just like, well, if, you know, our whitetail farms, like, I know where the deer are already for the most part. Mm-hmm. Plus, they move. Like, it, you could tell me yeah. that, but in 24 hours, he's not going to be there anymore. Right. Especially in the rut. I mean, yeah, maybe early season. It is kind of weird. I get what you're saying, though. It's it's just a, it's the entire sentiment of technology. Like, where is the line between, like, sporting and shooting? Right. Yeah. And I, I feel it. Like, it's very real. Like, should I, you know, 1,000-yard rifles are out there. Like, you can shoot game at 1,000 yards if you have the skill set for it. Do mm-hmm. I think that's sporting? I don't know. I can't decide. I don't – I lean towards no. I mean, I'm not that shooter, yeah. so maybe I'm biased. But, you know, that's it. there's a lot of things that I think are going to – like, in the, and that's just today. What about in 10 years from now? Oh, yeah. So – Yeah, guys being able to look at something through a trail camera – pull a gun out of that trail camera and <laughs> video game mode it over. Okay. It's in a food plot. Okay. Yeah. Gun engage pop. And then all you have to do is go out and get it. Well, and so here's the difference. I think that's horrible. I would never want to do that, but that's yeah. the same exact technology that helps paraplegic people enjoy the outdoors. And yeah. then I'm like, yeah, I think that's pretty cool that you offer someone that would not have the opportunity to shoot a deer. Otherwise the ability to use, you know, electronics and, and, you know, total control system to harvest a deer. I'm talking from, I'm talking from your couch. Well, that's the same. Like, the technology is there because, you know, someone that's in that position is obviously not interacting with the gun at all. So it's all remote. It's all, yeah. it, it's just right. very close proximity remote control. Right. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds great. But that technology could also do what you're saying. And I'd be like, no, I'm not a fan of that at all. Yeah. I don't know, man. I don't know. I just, I like to bitch about certain things, but I also like to, <laughs> to just keep my head down and do my own thing. Oh yeah. That's the only reason that's like the only thing you really can do at the end of the day and keep your sanity. Yeah. You know, however, I'm a huge fan of resident rights. Okay. And that, and I feel that as someone who lives in Iowa, myself and the rest of the hunters who live in Iowa have, have the right and should have and should be doing this to voice their opinion on on certain rules and regulations on how to uh, distribute non-resident tags, uh, what seasons there should be, what weapons you can use, things mm. like that. Um, uh, like all that should be up to the residents and the scientists. I'm, and I'm not saying no non-residents. Yeah, I'm saying I'm saying there needs to be research and there needs to be studies yeah. that that provide the information on whether or not we need more or less tags allocated yeah. every single year, right? It's all based off research and science, not based off of uh, politicians and lobbying and things like that. I agree with you. I think it gets into some interesting territory, though. And like, let's take the case of Montana, for example. Um, a resident elk tag in Montana is either twenty or thirty dollars. I can't remember. A non-resident elk tag is nine hundred dollars. Yeah. And so I agree with you that the state, the model we have in America, the American conservation model, is the greatest one on earth in, in relation to wildlife. There's nothing mm-hmm. out there in the world that that can compare with it, and it's based on the states own the wildlife, not the mm-hmm. government, not the federal government, not the the individual citizen, but the state. 
and they decide, like you said, like the state should decide, i.e. the residents of the state, the state biologists, all that stuff. Where I think it gets into some interesting territory, like Montana can play a little game of mess with the bull and get the horn, because if they make all these rules that either upset or cut out non-resident hunters, it's like, we pay 30 times more for that resource than your guy does. And I, so, you know, it's a huge revenue generator. We have a lot of skin in the game. So it's like, yeah, I think you guys should set the rules. But it would be nice to, like, at least have some non-resident um, consideration, too. And I don't think you're even talking about that. But, like, you saw that, like, lately, like, Montana just passed a rule where if you go guided, you get two points per year instead of one point per year. And so it's giving anyone with money the, the chance to step ahead of, in the curve. And so it's just interesting because it get like the non-residents pay so much more money for the same resource as a resident does, and they don't get any real input. And so I don't know what the solution is, but I would be very concerned about like if I was the Montana power of you know decision making, like man, I don't want to upset these non-residents. Like that's millions and millions of dollars of revenue that our state gets to use for resources, but how do we balance that with? the residents that choose to live here and benefit our state all year long. Yeah. Yep. And that's what I'm saying. I was just like, you know, a non-resident can come in and pay $900. He can come in for a week. He can go use an outfitter that all this is stimulating the economy. Um, he can buy gas, he can buy food, groceries, right. For, for one, maybe two weeks a year. And then he goes away and all that money is spent somewhere else. So, right. But the residents, Although they're paying $20 for an elk tag, they're paying taxes. They're paying every, every single, like all year round. Yeah. They're paying gas for gas every day. Yeah. They're paying taxes in that state every day. Yeah. And they choose to live there. Like yeah, Iowa. Exactly. It's not all pros living in Iowa, despite how big the bucks are. Like you guys still got to live yeah, in right. Iowa. <laughs> I mean, yep. and so like, if you choose to live there, yeah, you should have benefits. And it's an interesting, I don't know. I don't know which direction that'll go yeah. in the West because now the West runs into public land transfer topics every couple of years. Mm -hmm. And they yep. want all of us to, you know, rally with them and fight off, you know, big politicians that want to transfer federal lands to state and therefore sell off to private entities. And it's like, well, where were you when we wanted to come hunt and you started charging us 30 times more or, you know, making it so we can't get a tag? You know what I mean? That's the balance where I'm yeah. like, ooh, man, this is – I would not want to be in that role. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad I'm not in that role. And you just get, We just get to know, critique it from the outside. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. But at the same time, I just – I don't know if – for example, here's here's one thing. I don't want Iowa. I don't want a person like myself who is 100 able, like I'm 100% able bodied. Um, I don't want there to be a crossbow season during archery season. I don't want you to be able to use a cross in, in Iowa. I feel like that will change the dynamic of how all this works. But let's say Ohio or any other state that allows crossbows during the archery season. I don't give a shit. Minnesota just went that way. Yeah. And so I don't care. Yeah. I don't, I don't care one bit on, of what happens in any other States. If they, if they say, Hey, Hey, non-residents we're cutting tags or we're going to charge more for a tag. I can choose to go there or not and do yeah. participate in whatever their rules and regulations are. But I don't want someone else coming into my state and telling me what 
uh, I can or can't do who doesn't even live here. Oh yeah. That would, yeah. Like you're saying this, but like in that example, like I don't, the federal government would never do this, but if they just came out with a law that said the U S Supreme court recognizes crossbows as bows across all 50 States. And so then you're like, yeah, you as an Iowa resident completely get cut out of the conversation. Yeah, yeah. It's tricky. I mean, I don't know. There's so many sides of that crossbow debate and people get very hot, very fast. I've am fortunate. We hunt all family, private land in Minnesota yeah. and Minnesota isn't known for an exceptional deer herd anyway, where we hunt. So it's not like we have a very yeah. valuable resource to protect like Iowa does. I mean, Iowa's deer herd is, is very well manicured and it's been built to be world known. And so the, yeah. it's a different set of considerations for sure. When you're thinking of like that and be like, you know, limited entry Utah elk units with 400 inch bulls all of a sudden going over the counter. It's like, we've spent decades building this place up to be trophy potential. And then all of a sudden we're going to let everyone hunt here. Like the resources are going to get destroyed. Yeah. So yeah, very interesting topics. Yeah. I don't, I'm glad I'm not in any of these positions to make decisions. <laughs> Because I'm confident I can make a decision. I'm also very confident a lot of people would hate me. Yeah. So. Same here. Yeah. I don't know which way that would be for the better of. If it's for the better of the deer, for the better of my peace and sanity. Yeah, I mean, at, at the end of the day, that's how the decisions should be being made. I mean, for the betterment of the natural resource and not because someone has more or less money or a business says, hey, I want there to be this in your state or like a non-resident or, or, or outside influence, so to speak. Yeah. So like I've, I'm, I'm the kind of person who like you should make the decision based off the natural resource and the, like the resident involvement. But science has to play a huge role in any time you're, you're dealing with like tag allocation, weapon allocation for, for the natural resource that we're hunting. Cause most times as hunters, we're taking away, we're taking away from the natural resource. We're taking away from the landscape yeah. and we're not necessarily giving anything back to it. And so we have to like someone who is not as greedy because I mean, you in Iowa, let's say Iowa turns into, I don't know, in Oklahoma or a Southern state that has like three bucks, mm, you can shoot yeah. three bucks over the counter. Like, Missouri, you can, yeah. like th yeah, that, that, that resource goes away in a season, yeah. in a, in a single season. Hey, uh, we're going to give all non-residents over the counter unless you own large amounts uh, of land and you're going to be able to um, like, I'm, Outfitters would pop up everywhere yeah. and all these, all these things would happen. And so that's why it's important for everything to be based off science and in the best interest for the natural resource and, and not money and business. Yeah. And it's lobbying. I mean, I think yeah. at the end of the day lobbying, I mean, do you think Raven crossbows <laughs> was a part of the decision to legalize crossbows in Minnesota? Mm -hmm. I think they were. 100%. I mean, every time oh, yeah, you go dude. to the archery range and you see four guys checking out with Raven crossbows and you're like, that's $16,000 that just went out the door. Yeah. Yeah, I think. Oh, yeah, dude, 100%. There, there is there is a a crossbow, crossbows or, or crossbow organization that has purchased lobbying in uh, like lobbyists across several states. I know for a fact it's happening because it's happening right now in Iowa. 
and the Iowa Bow Hunters Association, along with a, a groups of other people, are trying to put a stop to it. Yeah, I think the lobbying thing is just the like that's not helping. I, like it, sh- no. we should realize like in today's day and age with our technology, like why do we need lobbying? Why can't we have an app? Like why can't Dan have an Iowa.gov app on his phone? where an issue gets posted, you get a notification, like, how do you feel about this? And then there's three scientists up reports on the issue and you vote. Like mm-hmm. we can do all of these things now. Why can't we like, you know, change how we do things. So it's not one person with money motivations at the Capitol, you know, whispering into people's ears. Mm-hmm. It seems absolutely. It seems like we could use some improvements overall, which I mean, if you figure out how to get that, done i mean there's a lot of important topics that would probably benefit from no more lobbying in our country aside from hunting and fishing (laughs) (laughs) absolutely yeah well it's been a pleasure hearing from you dan talking mule deer spot and stock archery i think spot and stock archery mule deer is going to be one of the hardest uh hardest tags to fill really when it comes down to the western hunting um yeah so it's nice to to hear your take on it and um and follow along hopefully hopefully the next time you come on the podcast you're talking about how you packed out a, a big old buck on your e-bike man i hope so <laughs> Here, you you want to know what the the real hardest thing about going five days in the backcountry spot and stock mule deer hunting uh what you guess what the hardest thing is like physically or like jokingly well, it's it's gonna be the same. I'll just tell. I'll just say the hardest thing is hunting like that for a week, and then instantly going back into tree stand mode. Oh yeah, and sitting for hours at a time. It just it messes with your mind. Like I was sitting there just like, okay, all right, is it this time yet? I I want to get down. I want to move. I want to go. Blah blah blah. And you know that's not how you tree stand hunt. You're supposed to be relaxed. You sit back you're quiet, you don't move. And it was a mind game this year, for sure, coming straight off of a uh, a mule deer, a spot and stock hunt into a tree stand hunt. Well, that's why a lot of Western hunters say they can't whitetail hunt because they can't sit still in a tree. Or like that first time you have that buck come through and stop and maybe bed down at 75 yards and you're stuck in your tree and you just want to move 25 yards and shoot them. Yep. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. That would be a challenge. That would be a challenge. Well, for now, I'm going to give you back the rest of your day. I got to wrap up a couple things here too, but it was nice to have you here, Dan, and it was nice for all of you guys to be listening along. Thank you so much.